I'm Tracy from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Are you a small business owner or even someone who dreams of entrepreneurship? Then check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from iHeart Podcasts and Intuit QuickBooks. Join hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres as they interview entrepreneurs sharing insights around starting and nurturing a small business. You won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. Planning your next trip? Choice Hotel's family of 22 brands has over 7,400 locations and the perfect hotel for any traveler you want to be. Like a Cambria Hotel serving up locally inspired craft cocktails for all my folks who maybe want to meet up and talk about Mad Royals. Check into a Radisson Hotel with flexible workspaces for you strivers who listen during business travel. Or a Comfort Hotel with free hot breakfast, family-friendly pools, and big spacious rooms for the parents who listen with their kids and need a little retreat. What are you waiting for? Join Choice Privileges and start earning points toward your next stay. Find a stay for any you when you book direct at choicehotels.com, where travels come true. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Get Your Guide. If you're planning a trip and you are not sure what you want to do when you get there, Get Your Guide offers the best way to connect with your destination. You can make memories from all over the globe with these tours that are locally vetted and expertly curated. All kinds of variety based on whatever it is that you're into. So if it's food or nature or sports, you can immerse yourself in any of these things on your next vacation. So just as some examples, there's a New York City deli food tour or whitewater rafting on the Grand Canyon. This is not just in the United States either. There is a chocolate and patisserie tour of Paris or a pasta making class in Rome. All of this sounds so awesome. You can discover and book your next unforgettable travel experience at getyourguide.com. Again, that is getyourguide.com. Happy Saturday. Since we just talked about the Dictionary Wars, we thought we would return to the theme of dictionaries for today's Saturday Classic. In 2012, prior hosts Sarah and Dublina did a two-part episode on W.C. Minor, who was a major contributor to the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary. These episodes are a little on the shorter side, so we are combining them into one as today's Saturday Classic. William Chester Minor experienced delusions, paranoia, and other symptoms of mental illness for most of his adult life. And as is often the case, a lot of the language around this has really evolved. And also, we just want to give folks a heads up that Minor spent most of his life in an institution after committing a murder, and his later experiences include some serious self-harm. So all of that comes up in today's episode. Also, the movie, The Professor and the Madman, which is mentioned as being in development when this episode was recorded, did come out in 2019. I have not seen it. Have you seen it, Holly? I have not. So uh, I can say that the reviews were not necessarily glowing. But enjoy. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Dablina Chakraborty. And I'm Sarah Dowdy. And this podcast starts with a legend involving the first meeting of two men. James Murray, the primary editor of the first edition of the Oxford English Dictionary, and one of his most prolific contributors, a Dr. W.C. Minor. 
So unless you're really into dictionaries, the scenario probably doesn't interest you right off the bat until you learn that there's a bit of a mystery surrounding the situation. So don't tune out of the podcast. No, stay with with us us for just a couple minutes. So as the story goes, Murray and Minor had been working together for about 20 years, but they'd never met. Miner had kept faithfully mailing Murray information on word origins and meanings that he picked up just in the course of his own reading and research. But even though Murray had invited him several times, Miner kept refusing to make the 50-mile trip from where he was living in the small English village of Crowthorne to Oxford, where Murray's dictionary headquarters were located. So Murray, I mean, he thinks this is a little strange, but he just thought Miner's probably a little eccentric or something like that. Maybe a shut-in or something. Yeah. So according to this legend, in 1897, Murray finally decided, well, if this guy's not going to come to me, I'm going to go to him. And work on the dictionary was progressing well at this point, and people who'd had a hand in its creation were starting to receive honors. So Murray thought, I want to make sure Dr. Minor gets recognized, too. So he doesn't spring a surprise visit on him or anything. He telegraphs Dr. Minor and says he's planning on visiting on this certain Wednesday in November and that he'll be taking a train that should arrive at Crowthorne Station just after 2 o'clock. So Dr. Minor wires him a response and says, basically, that's great. I'll be expecting you. You'll be welcome here. And it seems like these two guys are finally going to be able to meet. Everything seems fairly normal. Um, And it really continues to seem that way. Even when Murray arrives on the appointed day, he shows up at the train station and there's a carriage waiting for him and it ushers him off to this huge brick mansion. Once he's inside, a servant shows up and Uh, attends him to the grand study where there's this very important-looking man standing behind a desk. And Murray bows and announces himself to him. He says, quote, A very good afternoon to you, sir. I am Dr. James Murray of the London Philological Society and editor of the New English Dictionary. It is indeed an honor and a pleasure to at long last make your acquaintance, for you must be, kind sir, my most assiduous helpmeet, Dr. W.C. Minor. And there's kind of an awkward pause at this point, one one of those pauses where you feel like you can hear every sound in the room. And then the man responds, quote, I regret, kind sir, I am not. It is not as all as you suppose. I am, in fact, the superintendent of the Broadmoor Criminal Lunatic Asylum. Dr. Minor is most certainly here, but he is an inmate. He has been a patient here for more than 20 years. Dun, dun, dun. It's like the beginning of a Wilkie Collins novel almost. And like we said, this account, as originally reported in the Strand magazine in 1915, is thought to be just a legend. But the two men who are involved and the circumstances surrounding them and the circumstances that would have put them in a situation like this were very real indeed. And we're going to take a closer look at the relationship between these two men that we've talked about in part two of this podcast. But first, we want to look into the more pressing question that this anecdote raises, which is why most people tell it when they start talking about Dr. Minor. Who was this Dr. W.C. Minor? What was he doing in a criminal lunatic asylum? And how did a crazy person essentially become such a major contributor to the highly respected 
Oxford English Dictionary. Something that just seems the ultimate of methodical, level-headed reference works you can imagine. Right. So this is going to be a tale of madness and murder and lexicography, but there's some war in here too. And interestingly enough, this episode kind of ties in to our Civil War series in a roundabout way. Yeah, part one of it at least. But before we can get into any of that, first we need to start with the basics. Who was W.C. Minor? So William Chester Minor was born in June of 1834 in Ceylon, which is now Sri Lanka, but he was descended from a long line of Connecticut aristocrats. His parents were missionaries. His father, Eastman Minor, was a devout Congregationalist, and his mother, Lucy, the two of them together had just moved to Ceylon the year before William was born. He also had a sister, whose name was also Lucy, who was born a couple years after him. So the first really traumatic event in William Minor's life occurred when he was very, very young. Just after his third birthday, his mother died of consumption. His father remarried to another missionary named Judith Taylor a few years later and started a second family with her. But according to a BBC article on Minor, he was uh, kind of had a troubled childhood almost and was especially tormented during his boyhood with lascivious thoughts about local girls. Yeah, which doesn't seem that odd for a young boy, right, especially in his preteen years. But it's a point that may have significance later when we start talking about his insanity and how it manifested itself. So just kind of keep that in the back of your brain for now. At age 14, Miner's dad had him sent back to Connecticut, and he sailed back to the United States by himself. And then he moved in with his uncle Alfred, who was a store owner in New Haven. And about 10 years after that, Miner started school at Yale, where he specialized in comparative anatomy and earned a medical degree in February of 1863. There's also kind of an interesting side note about his time at Yale, though, especially considering his later involvement with the Oxford English Dictionary. According to an article by Joshua Kendall in The Nation, in 1861, when Miner was a first-year medical student at Yale, he signed a contract to write definitions for a new edition of Noah Webster's Dictionary, an American Dictionary of the English Language. And the agreement was that he'd be paid $500 to, quote, prepare the articles in the following departments, zoology, natural history, geology, mineralogy, botany, chemistry, anatomy, surgery of all sorts. Sounds like kind of a monumental undertaking, especially for a first-year medical student who's Probably Probably busy with other things, things. I would think so. But Miner got this job because James Dana, who was a professor at Yale um, and was originally supposed to write these selections or these sections of the, the new dictionary, had to lighten up his workload a bit because he was experiencing a bout of depression. So Dana suggested kind of randomly, it seems, a first-year med student minor to stand in for him and cover the sections. And Dana, being more experienced, would still supervise or at least review the the completed work. Apparently, though, he didn't supervise him that closely because according to Kendall's article, the sections minor worked on contained many inaccuracies and inconsistencies. His work was publicly criticized, which must have been mortifying for a young med student, especially by Samuel Stamen Haldeman of Delaware College, who later became one of the first presidents of the American Philological Association. He later wrote that, quote, accepting Professor Dana's part, the natural history is the, quote, weakest part of the book. 
burn. Yeah, totally. Regardless, Miner had his first experience working on a dictionary under his belt, and his name was in that 1864 edition of Webster's. And of course, he also had his medical degree, too. And so after graduating from Yale, Miner joined the Union Army. And his first posting was at the Knight Hospital in New Haven, Connecticut. And he was basically still training there, still getting his his, uh, experience as a doctor. But the Civil War was going on. So a few months to a year after um, entering this first posting, he ended up on the battlefront in Virginia, where he served as an assistant surgeon. Now, Miner wasn't really the best uh, soldier, you could imagine. He wasn't exactly cut out for the horrors of war. Most people describe him as being pretty sensitive, refined. He liked to read. He enjoyed painting watercolors. He played the flute. And so it's really unfortunate then considering the battle he ended up in. Yeah, he ended up at the Battle of the Wilderness, which is described as a particularly bloody and horrific battle. I've seen it described as a slaughterhouse. The battle lasted 50 hours, but it left 25,000 dead or wounded. It started when General Grant's men crossed the Rapidan River, and apparently the rifle fire was so thick, it not only killed people, but could cut off trees. It also started a fire in the underbrush so that not only were men being killed and wounded by gunfire, they were also being burned to death. One soldier wrote later that it was like, quote, hell had itself usurped the place of earth. And the key thing here as it relates to Minor, though, is that a lot of the people participating in this battle were Irishmen who had come over to America to escape the famine and um, make a little money while they were at it. And these guys were able to get work as soldiers in the Union Army for $13 a month. But of course, during a war, and especially a situation like the Battle of the Wilderness, where trees are being chopped down by rifle fire, you're going to have a lot of people who just figure $13 a month is not worth this and um, desert. So around this time, the Union Army had a lot of people who were guilty of desertion or attempted desertion. But because they still needed soldiers, they had to figure out a way to dissuade others from deserting, punish those who did without taking the standard uh, punishment, which is execution. They needed the soldiers to keep on fighting. So there were a few possible solutions. Some guys were suspended by their thumbs. Others were gagged with bayonets. And others were branded with the letter D on their cheeks uh, or their cheek, rather, their chest or their rear end with a hot iron. Or they kind of were tattooed almost, cut with a razor, and then the wound would be packed with black powder, uh, another form of branding ultimately. So on one occasion, or at least sources only refer to one specific occasion, Miner was forced to brand an Irish deserter who'd tried to run away from the Battle of the Wilderness. So you can kind of imagine what this must have been like for Miner. He was the young and experienced doctor being asked to perform this horrible task. And, you know, an Irishman was probably brought to him crying, struggling, pleading. And Miner has to take the hot branding iron and put it to the deserter's cheek and walk him probably scream in pain. Yeah, so most 
sources point to this as a defining moment for Miner, saying that it played a really big role in some of the strange, unusual things that started to happen in his life not too long after his war service. But after the war, Miner continued to serve in the army for several years. He did pretty well for for himself, actually. He rose through the ranks, eventually becoming a commissioned captain. But during that time, his behavior also started to become increasingly strange. When he was stationed on Governor's Island in New York, he started visiting brothels a lot. And after that, he was transferred to Florida, where his behavior started getting even more and more erratic and paranoid and sometimes even violent. And he began to think that his superiors were plotting something against him. So by 1868, it was pretty clear that Miner's mind was not well, and army doctors diagnosed him as having monomania, or an obsession with one subject, which gives rise to delusions. They also said that he was suicidal and homicidal. So Miner went to the Government Hospital for the Insane in Washington, D.C., which later became St. Elizabeth's Hospital. And he actually volunteered for this. He volunteered to go. And then after 18 months in that facility, doctors decided that Miner was, quote, incapacitated by causes arising in the line of duty. So he was basically forced to retire from the army. But he did win a lifetime army commission. So he was going to be taken care of financially. Yes. So after being released from the army, Miner returned to Connecticut and spent a little bit of time with his family. But his family soon decided that England was the place for him to be because they were really hoping that maybe if he went there, Miner could settle down a little bit, maybe start painting again, meet up with some talented people start to earn his reputation back. So they packed him off with his paint and a letter of introduction to the art critic and drawing master, John Ruskin, hoping that Ruskin would be some sort of entree to English society for a minor, somebody to introduce him to to people who could help him start recovering. But for reasons that are still unclear, Miner didn't seem to even try to blend into respectable society when he got to England at the end of 1871. He settled in the Lambeth section of London, one of the lowest, seediest, most crime-ridden parts of the city. Some people think he might have moved there because he had easier access to prostitutes from this area, but we're not sure. So we don't know much about his time there, but it seems that his delusions just continued to get worse. He thought people, Irishmen in particular, were trying to break into his room at night. It seems like that vision of the branded Irishman, his experience with that, was kind of coming back to haunt him at this point. Yeah. In fact, according to an account kept by the Berkshire Record Office, Miner made a report to Scotland Yard shortly before Christmas saying that he thought men were trying to force their way into his room at night to poison him. He believed these men to be Irish. And Scotland Yard just dismissed him as a crazy man, didn't follow up on it, didn't do anything about it. Then on February 17th, 1872, a constable was patrolling the Lambeth area and heard several shots ring out at about 2 a.m. He rushed off in the direction the shots came from, blowing his whistle on the way to alert other constables in the area to, to come in and support him. And who should he find holding the gun but William Chester Minor? Yes, Minor had shot and killed a man named George Merritt, a working man who was innocently on his way to work at a brewery, a man who Minor had never met. 
Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Zigazoo has made me zigzag. What I mean by that is I swore I would never let my kids on social media, but now I'm setting them loose on Zigazoo. Before I found Zigazoo, I believed all social media was inappropriate for kids, but I feel great about my kids being on Zigazoo. Videos are moderated by actual people before being added to the feed. Zigazoo is a space for kids to post videos they've created and to share them with other kids just like them. And since there are no comments or messaging, you don't have to worry about mean comments on your kids' videos. And you need parental consent before joining Zigazoo. Bottom line, it's a space that prioritizes data safety for kids. Oh, but don't take my word for it. Zigazoo is KidSafe COPPA certified. So weigh everything Zigazoo has to offer. Maybe you'll zigzag too. Zigazoo, a social network for kids. Download the Zigazoo app today. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out season two of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. In part one of this podcast, we took a look at Miner's early life, how he came from an aristocratic family. He got a good education. He studied medicine at Yale and joined the Union Army as an assistant surgeon during the Civil War. And his life and career at that point seemed really full of promise, but his mental health went downhill after the war. And we talked about how that downward spiral may have been triggered by an incident during the Battle of the Wilderness in which he was forced to brand an Irish deserter on the cheek. After spending about 18 months in a hospital for the insane in D.C., Miner decided to head across the pond to England, where he could hopefully rest, paint, kind of calm his thoughts a bit, maybe earn back his reputation by connecting with the right people in London. But when we last saw Miner, he'd done nothing like that. No, it didn't go down that way at all. He had gotten off on the wrong foot by taking up residence in Lambeth, which was one of the seediest parts of London. And when we left off with part one of this story, he had just killed a man who he'd never laid eyes on before. So we're going to pick up at that crime, February 17th, 1872, just as the constables were reaching the scene, finding Miner standing there, gun in hand. 
And we should mention before we get too far into this that one of the sources of information in this podcast is Simon Winchester's book, The Professor and the Madman. One of our listeners actually mentioned it on Facebook, so it reminded me that I need to bring it up and talk about it a little bit. It's a really fascinating book. It takes a really in-depth look at Minor's story it's and some of the, the other characters definitive here. definitive work on his life, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. A lot of articles about Minor use this as a source, too. So even the other sources we use probably pulled from that to some extent. So moving on with the story, though, the man that Minor had shot was bleeding all over the street. Two constables tried to get him to a nearby hospital, but it was too late. They identified the dead man as George Merritt, who'd been a stoker at the Red Lion Brewery, which was something of a landmark in the area, even though the area wasn't that great. And he'd been there for eight years, which meant that he pretty much, he being a stoker meant that he kept the fires over which the beer was made burning. Um, obviously, that wasn't a glamorous job. This guy brought home 24 shillings a week, which wasn't a lot even back then. He was very poor, and he also had a wife and six kids and one more baby on the way. Yeah, so a lot of family relying on him. He was about 34 years old, and he did live in the area. And when he ran into Minor, he had been on his way to work at the dawn shift of the brewery. So it's about 2 a.m. heading out, runs into this guy on the street who ends up shooting him. So meanwhile, the constable who apprehended Minor, who was Constable Tarrant, had what was sort of a strange exchange with the suspect. He asked him, whom did you fire at? And Minor, who Tarrant described as really cool and collected, gave this bizarre response, he said, it was a man. You do not suppose I would be so cowardly as to shoot a woman. So not really the response he was probably expecting to get out of him. Um, Tarrant proceeded to take Minor down to the Tower Street police station, ask some questions. On the way, though, Minor started to say that the whole thing was an accident, started to give a little more reason, maybe more of what Tarrant had been expecting in the first place. He was just saying he'd shot the wrong man. He had been trying to defend himself from somebody who'd broken into his room, and he'd made a mistake. He was also saying a lot of other weird stuff on the way to the police station, too. So you could see how maybe the constable wouldn't quite believe him. He was asking the constable to search him. He was like, well, what if I have another gun? And the constable was like, well, please keep it in your pocket if you have another <laughs> gun. I mean, it was really kind of an odd sort of interaction that they had. But when they got to the station, Minor was formally arrested and charged with murder. Because he was American, the U.S. minister in London had to be notified. And the crime, which became known as the Lambeth tragedy, became an international incident. And Minor was 37 years old at this time, just to give you kind of a reference point. Okay, so at this point, Minor got put into the Horsemonger Land Jail, and Scotland Yard got put on the case. So Minor himself wasn't really much of a help. I mean, this is no surprise. He wasn't much of a help with the investigation. He just continued to say over and over, it was an accident. You know, I I shot the wrong man. But when the trial started in early April, details about Miner's strange life started to surface through the help of various witnesses. His Lambeth landlady, for instance, came forward, Mrs. Fisher, and she said that while he was a very good tenant, he was kind of a strange fellow. He was anxious. He'd often demand to have the furniture in his room moved around and rearranged, and he was really, really afraid that people might break into his place. 
In particular, she said that he was very afraid of the Irish. He would always ask if she had any Irish servants working in the house or if there were any Irish lodgers staying there. In part one of this podcast, we mentioned Miner's delusions about Irishmen breaking into his room at night and how it was probably related to that branding incident during the Civil War when he had to brand the Irish deserter on the cheek. And we talked about how he'd already contacted Scotland Yard about this. During the trial, a Scotland Yard detective named Williamson, in fact, came forward and testified that Miner had come to him three months earlier, complaining that men were trying to come into his room at night and poison him. Specifically, Miner believed the intruders were members of the Finian Brotherhood, militant Irish nationalists, and he thought they were planning on murdering him and making it look like a suicide. And other people, you know, people who had met Miner and spoken to him before, did have a suspicion that something was off with him. Williamson, the guy who Miner went to, wrote in his notes from that time that Miner was clearly insane. But there was another aspect to Miner's delusions as well. Another man who testified at the trial was William Dennis, and he was an employee at London's Bethlehem Hospital for the Insane. We've talked about maybe doing a podcast on on that at some point. But his job was to watch Miner at night when he was in jail. And Dennis said that every morning when Miner would wake up, he would accuse Dennis of having been paid to molest Miner during the night while he was asleep. And Miner's stepbrother, George Miner, would later confirm these delusions about sexual abuse, saying that for the time that Miner was home before he left for England, he would often accuse people of trying to break into his room and molest him at night. So it wasn't just this fear of somebody breaking in or the Irish trying to get him. There was this whole other aspect to it. Yeah, the sexual aspect of his delusions. And I think that's why some people relate sort of his mental illness or maybe relate the beginning of his mental illness to um, the lascivious thoughts that we mentioned in the first part of this podcast that he used to have about girls in Sri Lanka when he was growing up, that maybe that was an concern over it, too. Exactly. Maybe that was an early indication of mental illness, I should say. So Miner himself pretty much confirmed this aspect of his delusions when he was interrogated, too. He testified that on the night that he killed George Merritt, he woke up suddenly and saw a man standing at the foot of his bed. So he reached for his Colt service revolver, which he kept under his pillow while he slept. And he said that the man saw him reach for his gun and then took off and ran down the stairs and out of the house. Miner followed him and then saw a man running down the street, thought it was the intruder, fired four times and shot him. That's his side of the story anyway. It was really our poor brewery employee. But the final decision in the case was determined by the McNaughton rules, which were named for somebody who had shot a man and was acquitted on the grounds of being insane. And the jury in Miner's case determined that he was also of unsound mind when he had committed the crime. So the ruling was not guilty on the grounds of insanity. And the judge told him, quote, you will be detained in safe custody, Dr. Miner, until Her Majesty's pleasure be known. So we already know where Miner was sent from the story at the beginning of our first episode. The detention was set to take place at Broadmoor Asylum for the criminally insane in the village of Crowthorn in the county of Berkshire. And he was known there officially as file number 742-742 and was expected to spend the rest of his life there as a, quote, certified criminal lunatic. But we need to describe what his life really was there. It was more than just being a number and a, quote, certified 
criminal lunatic. Yeah, it's it was better than you might expect. He got to Broadmoor on April 17th, 1872. And according to that account kept by the Berkshire Record Office that we mentioned in the first part of the podcast, he was described at the time as a thin, pale, and sharp-featured man with light-colored sandy hair, deep-set eyes, and prominent cheekbones. He was considered to be low risk, so he ended up in cell block two, which was known unofficially, I guess, as the swell block. It I was, like that swell block, cell block. <laughs> it was the lowest security cell block, and it's where prisoners had the most privileges. And since Minor was well-educated and a well-to-do American, he got special treatment there, special freedoms and comforts that a lot of inmates probably didn't get. Almost as soon as he got there, the American consulate in London, for example, made sure that Minor was reunited with his possessions, including his own clothes, his art materials, and his diary. They didn't send him with his surgical instruments, though. Good They call. kept those. Don't send a bunch of scalpels over to the guy in the <laughs> insane asylum. But he also had some money coming in. He had a regular allowance from his family, which gave him the ability to buy stuff or have the hospital purchase things on his behalf. And that made his food a lot better. You know, he'd have poultry and game, steak, biscuits, coffee, sometimes even wine and spirits. But it also allowed him to keep his mind occupied. This was an intellectual man, and he was able to purchase newspapers, engineering papers. He might have used those to get some tips on sturdy building construction because he was, of course, still extremely troubled by these delusions of people breaking into his room at night. Um, at one point, he supposedly even had his bedroom floors covered with zinc to keep the demons from coming up through the floorboards while he was asleep. He would also get a lot of books, and we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second, but many of these books he would have shipped from New Haven, Connecticut, or ordered from shops in London. And at some point during his stay there, probably pretty early on from what we can tell, Miner was also given access to two cells, a separate day room in addition to his bedroom, and he converted that day room into a kind of library lined with bookshelves. So overall, he had this pretty comfortable existence at Broadmoor, considering the circumstances, and he received visits from family and friends, and he'd occasionally dine in the superintendent's home. According to Winchester's book, he even received visits from Eliza Merritt, who is none other than the widow of the man he'd shot. She'd supposedly forgiven him after Minor settled some money on her and her children, but whether or not this actually happened is still up for debate. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to the Ronettes Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Sarah, I love that spring break vlog you posted on Zigazoo. OMG, you watched it? Yeah, it was edited so well. I think you're so talented. Social media interactions are only positive when you use Zigazoo. Zigazoo is the world's largest and safest social media network for kids. Your kids can upload their content and see what their friends are up to. With Zigazoo, they can create videos, enter to win prizes, and try out the latest dances and trends. There's no commenting, no text messaging, and everything is 100% human moderated. Plus, all community members are real, verified kids just like yours. There are no bots, trolls, or AI. 
Because Zigazoo is about one thing and one thing only, and that is fun. Try out Zigazoo this spring break and let your kids share your vacation blogs and best edits with their friends safely. Download the Zigazoo app today. That's Z-I-G-A-Z-O-O. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. So Miner might have just been in this situation with his two cells, all of his books, his newspaper, his engineering papers, spent the rest of his days there unknown. But one day around the summer of 1880, while he was reading some of that material, he came across this sort of press release and it was called An Appeal to Readers. And it was in a book that he'd ordered from a library in London. So it was basically this request for English speaking volunteer readers around the world to help out with a massive publication project that was going on at Oxford University, which at the time was going to be called the New English Dictionary. And it was intended to be the biggest, most thorough collection of English words yet. So they needed, there was a soliciting some help for their new dictionary they were writing. Yeah, so it seems Miner immediately realized that he was kind of in the perfect position to contribute here, seeing as how he had tons of time on his hands to read, and he could get new books pretty much whenever he wanted. So he wrote to James Murray, who'd taken over as editor of the Dictionary Project in 1879, and he's the one who had drafted that press release we just mentioned, and asked if he could help out. And as we mentioned in part one to this podcast, uh, James Murray ended up being the Oxford English Dictionary's editor for 40 years and was also its greatest and most famous editor. He's a really interesting character and probably deserves a podcast in his own right, though. He was around Miner's age, very intelligent, and he loved learning, but he came from a poor family and had to quit school at 14. So he was basically self-taught, which I think is pretty amazing considering all he accomplished. And I mean, by self-taught, you mean he knew lots of languages and astronomy, not just like he was an informed man. (laughs) Yes, exactly. He was very highly regarded for his knowledge. But of course, we're focusing on Miner's story here, so we'll just tell a little bit about the dictionary so you'll understand exactly how Miner was helping out from his cell in Broadmoor. So this grand dictionary project actually started in 1857 with three members of London's Philological Society, Richard Trench, Herbert Coleridge, 
and Frederick Furnival, who saw some serious deficiencies in the dictionaries that had been published so far, including those by Webster, which we talked about a little bit in the previous podcast, Samuel Johnson, and Charles Richardson. They had two main problems with these existing dictionaries. On one hand, they didn't think that they were comprehensive enough. For example, some just included very difficult words. So words you would need to look up in the dictionary. Exactly. And they felt a dictionary should really include every word in the English language. They also felt that every word, along with a definition, should have an authoritative etymology. So quotations from literary passages that would illustrate every meaning of every single word, including, and this was a key point, one meaning, one quotation, I should say, that illustrated the word's earliest known usage in English. So try to wrap your mind around that for a minute. I mean, I think that's important before we go on. Imagine trying to find that earliest usage through every book (laughs) printed in English and not have any sort of search engine capabilities, of course. Real people would have to go through these books reading and looking for the words. So, of course, since there would be a lot of words included and each word might need the support of several quotations, there was no practical way that a dictionary staff could handle all of that on their own. So the plan was to involve these unpaid volunteer readers, enthusiastic readers, I guess, from all over the English-speaking world. And that was the, the announcement that Miner saw in the paper or the book. So in that article in The Nation by Joshua Kendall that we referenced in the previous episode, he compares it to, quote, what we now know of as the wiki model of creating and disseminating knowledge, which I think is a really cool way to think about it. It makes it all make sense when you think about it like that. Yeah. Because we do have this modern way to, to look at it, to compare it, something to compare it to. Yeah, wiki without the internet. Exactly. So for a number of reasons, real work on the dictionary didn't get going until Murray came on board in 1879, and even then it was really slow going. For example, it took until 1884 to publish the first volume, which was A to Ant. (laughs) So very slow. Very slow going. But still, this wiki model of um, collecting illustrative quotations was pretty successful. You know, they were getting a lot of real work done. And they ended up getting millions of contributions from volunteers in England, Ireland, Scotland, and the United States. People who would send in quotations from books and magazines and newspapers. And like we mentioned, you know, they were trying to go for the earliest known use. Some of these went back as far as the ninth century. And it was to this aspect of the dictionary that Miner was contributing. So he didn't really do any defining like he had done for Webster's. But as we've mentioned several times, he did become one of Murray's best contributors. He'd send in these small cards with quotations on them by the thousand and eventually more. His personal library contained a lot of rare 16th and 17th century books in particular, and he'd search through these for appropriate quotes. And he even went a step further and would sometimes ask the OED editors what word they were were working on and then find quotes to go with those specific words. And I mean, just thinking about that makes my head hurt that you would get a list, maybe a short list of a few words they were working on and then go look through your entire library for that word. I just, I can't imagine. So 
1899, Murray said that Miner had sent in, quote, no less than 12,000 quotes and added, quote, so enormous have been Dr. Miner's contributions during the past 17 or 18 years that we could easily illustrate the last four centuries from his quotations alone. So it's no wonder that Murray really wanted to meet Miner along the way, this guy who was contributing so much to the dictionary. But their first meeting probably didn't take place quite like that dramatic legend that I think I compared it to Wilkie Collins. It sounded like a Wilkie (laughs) Collins setup um, that we related at the beginning of part one of this podcast, um, the one that was published in The Strand in 1915. That sensationalized account has the two meeting in 1897 after Minor failed to attend the Great Dictionary Dinner, which sounds fun, thrown at Queens College in Murray's honor to celebrate the dictionary's progress. And according to that legend, this was the first time Murray realized that his favorite contributor was actually an inmate in a mental asylum. But Winchester's research kind of turned up something different. Yeah, both through his research and the discovery of a letter written by Dr. Murray in the Broadmoor archives, we can see that Murray, though he might have thought that Minor was just a retired doctor or a doctor in the asylum at first, he probably was clued into Minor's actual situation by the late 1880s and probably visited him as soon as 1891 rather than 1897. Murray was always really sensitive to Minor's situation, though, apparently never letting him know that he knew that Minor was mentally ill. So the two formed this kind of friendship that went beyond their working relationship. Murray even visited Minor on several occasions, though it's unclear, according to the Broadmoor records, exactly how often that occurred. Murray would supposedly telegraph ahead, however, to find out what Minor's exact mood was before visiting, and he would avoid coming if Minor was especially angry at the time. But when he did visit, they had these very uh, cozy experiences, kind of like two well-respected colleagues hanging out together. Murray and Minor would sit in Minor's day room and have some tea and have some cake in front of the fire, just like it was a normal kind of situation, just catching up. friends hanging out. So you'd think that maybe this friendship and having a purpose in the form of his dictionary work would have been really good for Miner's mental state. But his paranoid delusions just continued to get worse. He'd think that he was being drugged at night with chloroform or tortured with electricity or kidnapped from the asylum at night to be abused. So that nightly sexual abuse was still a big part of it. And he'd even tried to barricade his room at night to protect himself. And around the turn of the 20th century, on December 3rd, 1902 to be exact, he experienced a major setback. That morning, he actually mutilated his own genitals, and it seemed to be a desperate attempt to kind of put a stop to the indecent acts that he thought he was being forced to do every night. When asked why he did it, he said he did it, quote, in interests of morality. So after that, he was kept in the infirmary for four months and then sent back to his rooms. But the delusions just persisted. And as the years went by, he continued to get worse mentally and work less and less. And also his health started to decline. So a lot of people, including Murray, began to petition for his release to his family. And at first, these petitions were denied, but the government finally relented 
granted in 1910 and then granted Miner's release and ordered that he be deported back to the States. So Murray, who had by that time been knighted for his work in the dictionary and his wife, visited Miner one last time right before Miner left the country on April 15, 1910. And he brought along a court photographer to document this last, this final meeting between two friends and two really influential contributors to what was going to be a famous dictionary. Murray was accompanied back to the States on a steamer by his brother Alfred, but it was really a long time before he actually made it home to Connecticut. He He immediately went back to that hospital for the insane in D.C. that he was at previously, which is now St. Elizabeth's, and he spent almost 10 years there, kind of in the same way that he had lived at Broadmoor as a privileged inmate who still had nightly outbursts. So his problems kind of continued to progress, and in between he would sort of spend his days reading and painting and doing, you know, his activities that he enjoyed, but still... In ill health. Yeah. So by 1919, though, he was finally allowed to go back to Connecticut to be near his family. And he died there March 26, 1920. Um, You know, having been in prison the majority of his life by that point, or the hospital, rather. So even though he lived this life of anonymity while he was locked away for so many years, his name is still pretty well known. It's still in the preface to the Oxford English Dictionary, in fact. Yeah, which ultimately that dictionary took 70 years to complete. It was completed in 1928, which was a decade after Murray's death. And I think I found I saw this in that Nation article that we mentioned. Give us some stats. Yeah, some stats to kind of boggle the mind. In the end, the first edition, not including the supplements that were published after, but that first edition published in 1928, had 414,825 headwords, so to speak, defined by... 1,827,306 illustrative quotations over 15,490 pages. Pretty incredible. (laughs) Very incredible. And it sounds like Minor was a pretty significant part of all of that. So in recent years, consequently, more people have taken an interest in his life. And of course, there's Winchester's book that you mentioned in the beginning. And there's maybe even going to be a movie. Do you have any more info on that? I don't have any more info on that. When you look it up, it just says that the movie The Professor and the Madman is in development. Apparently, Mel Gibson bought the rights to the movie in 1998. And they've gone through a couple of different directors, I think, and they're working on it. But I don't know when it's supposed to come out. But I think that'll be an interesting one to see when it does. Yeah, it sounds like it would be a fantastic movie, actually. I'm imagining the... (laughs) how you dramatize the dictionary writing scenes, though. Sort of like computer movies, they have to have scenes of, like, rapid typing, maybe page flipping through 16th century books. Thanks so much for joining us on this Saturday. Since this episode is out of the archive, if you heard an email address or a Facebook URL or something similar over the course of the show, that could be obsolete now. Our current email address is historypodcast at iheartradio.com. Our old How Stuff Works email address no longer works. You can find us all over social media at Missed in History. And you can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, and wherever else you listen to podcasts. 
Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. And that makes us FACET for life now, I guess. <laughs> Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. Welcome to 500 Greatest Songs, a podcast based on Rolling Stone's hugely popular, influential, and sometimes controversial list. I'm Brittany Spanos. And I'm Rob Sheffield. We're here to shed light on the greatest songs ever made and discover what makes them so great. From classics like Fleetwood Mac's Dreams to The Ronettes' Be My Baby, and modern day classics like The Killer's Mr. Brightside. Listen to Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Have you heard about the social media platform for kids? It's called Zikazoo. It's a great place where kids like me can come together to make fun videos. Videos moderated by real people who review content before it's posted to the feed. I love the dance challenges. I love that it's KidSafe COPPA certified. Uh, I don't know what that means. It means it has built-in privacy protections for your online data. Zigazoo, the world's largest social network. For kids. (laughs) Download the Zigazoo app today.